You'll be reading 1 Samuel 27, 1 through 7. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Ashish the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Ashish at Gath, he and, his men, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam and Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Ashish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Ashish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Be seated. So, uh, half an hour ago, on the south side of Xenia, uh, a new church launched this morning, a church called Home Church. It's off of Home Avenue. And uh, if you would join me in prayer for them, um, I don't know if you knew this or not, but churches are actually not in competition with one another. Uh, we are uh, a part of the same body, and, uh, and we hope that, uh, that God will use them in a mighty way in this city. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray for the Church of Xenia. Uh, we pray um, for all churches this morning, and especially this new one. We lift them up to you, Father, and we pray that your gospel is proclaimed there, and that your name is glorified there. And we pray this morning that those folks will leave that place and go out into this city and, and into Grain County and be a light. Father, we pray for this city because it desperately needs you. Help us uh, to love our brothers and sisters well. Help us to strive for unity. Help us to see uh, that your kingdom is the kingdom that matters. In Jesus' name. Survival of the fittest, it is uh, this, this basis of belief that undergirds um, the, the, the notion or, or the faith, if you would, of, of natural uh, sort of selection. So if, if you were a naturalist, uh, you would look at the, the world around you and, and all of creation or all of the universe, and you would, you would look at it and you would, you would believe that um, everything that is in existence has come into existence purely through natural means, right? Um, and, uh, and for those of us who, who are Christians, uh, we, we would say something completely different, right, when we look at creation. Um, we look at, at the universe in which we live, and, and we believe that into the nothingness that was, God spoke. God intervened, and into the nothingness, the universe came about. That's, that's what we believe as, as creationists, as Christians, right? But there's something that we have in common with the naturalist, and that is this. Both of us recognize that the world is broken. That, that life is hard, life is difficult, that there is a struggle and opposition and there is, uh, there is, there is predators, right? That life is difficult, that's what we agree on. But whether or not we're talking about uh, an endangered snow leopard in the Himalayas or we're talking about a human being living here in Greene County, that the truth is life is hard. 
The truth is there are obstacles to life. The, the truth is, is there are things to overcome. And, and we answer the question, how is it that you overcome? How is it that you prevail over the pain and the, the tragedy and the obstacles and the enemies that life throws at you? How do you overcome that? How do you prevail that? And, and, and the person who would, who, who would, who would look at, 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 at survival of the fittest, they would say it is the strong who survive. It is the strong who overcome, and it is the weak who perish. The Bible actually teaches us some something completely different. But the reality is, is that for many of us who would call ourselves Christians, practically speaking, though we would have this mental assent that God intervened and spoke the world out of nothings, we would mentally assent to that truth. Practically how we're actually living is a lot more like a naturalist, striving for strength and survival of the fittest as if God didn't exist. Practically speaking, that's how many of us live. This morning, um, we are, uh, we're gonna begin our end of 1 Samuel. We have one more week after today. Um, we're gonna be looking at the, the last five chapters of Samuel. So this morning, we'll look at chapter 27, 29, and 30. Next week, 28 and 31. We're gonna look specifically just at David today. We'll look at Saul next week and how the story concludes with each one of these characters. But I want us to start this morning by looking back towards something we read at the beginning. Going back to 1 Samuel chapter two, we read the song of Hannah. Now, uh, Hannah was, uh, if you'll remember, uh, she was barren. She was not able to conceive. Her and her husband were not able to have children. Now, from a naturalist perspective, Hannah was a biological dead end. From a naturalist perspective, um, she was not able to, to carry forth life in, and perpetuate it. And so by, by her essence, she was inherently weak and, and, and the end of her story was, ended with her. She was barren, she was not able to have children. But what we see is that she cries out to God. She goes to God and she cries out to him and, and God shows up, God intervenes, God intercedes into her story and she is able to conceive. And she gives birth to a baby boy, Samuel, and she turns this baby boy over to the Lord to serve him in his temple or his tabernacle. But she writes this song, 1 Samuel 2, and in this song we hear these words, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren, childless woman has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. You see, in Hannah's song, it's not about the survival of the fittest. She doesn't proclaim that what it takes to overcome is, is found in your own strength. She proclaims something else to be in control. Verse six, she goes on, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. It is not the strong that survive. It is not survival of the fittest. In fact, she sums it up quite well in verse nine. She says this, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Not by might shall a man 
prevail. When it comes to the question of how do you overcome, how do you win at this thing called life that is so difficult, not by might will you prevail, is what she says. She, she sums up all of 1 Samuel with those words. In fact, I would say that she sums up the gospel with those words. Because the gospel message is that the reason why life is so hard the reason why things are so difficult and there are enemies and there are oppositions at every corner, the reason for that is us. Because in the beginning, we were created in the image of God, meant to reflect accurately who he is, but we rebelled and we rejected and we walked away from him and we brought sin and death into this, this world. We brought it in. And because we brought it in, we couldn't fix it. It's not by might that we will prevail. It is not by might that we will be saved. We need somebody to intercede for us. It sums up all of 1 Samuel. This morning, we're going to look at uh, David's conclusion in 1 Samuel. And I want you to be, be looking and asking the question, how does David prove it's not by might that we prevail? How did he bear that out in his life? Um, we're going to uh, jump right in here um, to verse, or chapter 27 beginning in verse one, it says this, and David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Now, um, if you'll remember, uh, the, the story of the last few weeks has been this, this interchange between Saul and David, this cyclical thing that's happening. David is on the run. Uh, Saul hunts him down. God delivers Saul into David's hand. Uh, David says, I will not raise my hand against God's anointed one. And, and, and so Saul uh, is sort of repentant, and, and he allows David to, to walk away. But then a little while later, the hunt is on again. The story's gone back and forth between Saul and, and David. This morning, we're just gonna look at, at David. Uh, we left off with the fact that um, Saul has gone back uh, home and, and David is, is knowing that Saul will one day return and, and, and pick up the search for him again. He decides, where can I go? Where can I go? Because he, he's tired. He, he's spent. He's through. He is tired of running away from Saul and being chased by him. Where can I go to get some respite from being chased down by him? The only place he can think of is to go to the Philistines. And if you listen to his words, you can hear the tiredness of it. And you can hear he's coming to the end of his faith in this. He's not turning to God. He's, he's despairing of hope. I will go and live with the Philistines. And so he does. He takes his 600 men and, and all their wives and children. They go to Akish of, of, of Gath. Um, Gath welcomes him. He's going to be a mercenary for him. And so he welcomes him. He actually gives him the town of Ziklag. And, and, and for the first time in years, David has a home. For the first time in years. And, and, and David is he's able to have a home. And it says there that, that Saul stops chasing him. He knows a little bit of respite. And so he sort of begins to go to work. Look at verse 8, chapter 27. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeromalites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. Uh, David is lying. 
he is going out on raids and he is attacking mutual enemies of both Judah and the Philistines. He's not assaulting the Philistines, he's not going after the Philistines, he's attacking enemies of the Philistines, but he goes to get uh, Achish and he says that, that he's, he's actually attacking people of his own tribe. Achish believes that, that he's making a stench of himself among his own people, that, that his own people won't tolerate him so he can never go back. He belongs to Achish forever now. But he's not raiding his own tribes. He is, in fact, he's, he's raiding uh, the, the, the tribes of, of mutual enemies of, of the Philistines. Um, and so skip ahead now with me to chapter 28, just the first two verses there. It says, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Um, this is like a, a game of poker. Who's going to blink? Who, who, who's actually bluffing in this game? The Philistines are gathering their forces and they're going to go to war against Israel. Is David going to take their side? Is David actually going to fight against his own people? Who's bluffing here? David's like, you're going to get to see what I can do. It's a very vague statement, actually. It's almost like watching like a, a mobster movie and, and the king of Gath, like he's the mob boss and, and David's like the undercover FBI agent and he's handing him a gun and he's telling him to shoot the local cop and you're wondering, is he going to do it? Is he going to cross that line? Is he going to fight against the very people of God? It's very big. Skip ahead now to chapter 29, verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? Wait a minute. What's going on? I want to show you guys uh, a map that hopefully will help us understand what's, what's going on here a little bit better. Um, what you're going to see is uh, the, the map shows all of Israel. Um, this is the Palestine in, in the, 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 the time of uh, of David, right? And those are the cities that existed then, okay? Um, so uh, I want to show you first the, the tribe of Judah and their region. So this is Judah. This is David's tribe. And within this region, there is Bethlehem where David comes from. Now notice that Judah is at the southernmost part of Israel. And it stands there between Israel and the Amalekites. Look at the Amalekites for a, minute, for a second. The Amalekites, um, they stand between Israel and Egypt. Okay, they're in that zone between Egypt and, and Israel. Now, the writer of 1 Samuel is taking us back to Exodus. He's taking us back a few hundred years to the story of the Exodus, of God bringing his children out of Israel. Now, for, for those of you who've never studied that, that book before, uh, there's a place in the book of Exodus where God pours out 10 judgments on Egypt because of their, the slavery of his people in order to let them go. 10 judgments, 10 plagues poured out, and it's not just on the people of, it's not just the Egyptians, it's actually plagues of judgment on their gods. When you, when you understand that passage, when you read those passages, you understand that God is actually attacking spiritual beings at work behind the gods that they say they worship. Paul says in Ephesians 6, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against authorities, spiritual powers and heavenly realms there is a real enemy out there behind what we see in the physical world there is a real spiritual enemy and we read this 
uh, in uh, Exodus chapter 17, 14 through 16. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So the Israelites come out of Egypt and they're going towards the promised land. And the Amalekites attack them. Now you notice that Moses says uh, Amalek, meaning one name to embody a whole group of people. Just like Israel is one name that embodies a whole group of people, a group of people that God identifies as his son. So God's son, ransomed and rescued out of Egypt on his way to the the land promised to them, is attacked by Amalek. And God understands that this is not some ignorant uh, group of people who are just attacking people who happen to wander into their territory. This is a group of people that embody a spiritual enemy whose hand is against the very throne of God. And because of that, they are meant to wipe out this group of people because they embody an enemy whose hand is against the very throne of God. Um, Moses also says that this is a fight that will go from generation to generation, continue on. Joshua would fight it and not win. Saul would fight it and not win. David will fight it and not win. Continues on generation after generation. Um, But I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to come back to the Amalekites in chapter 30. So back to our map there. um, The area of the the Philistines, they are on the the west coast of Israel. Um, The the Philistines were from the Aegean Sea. They uh, were were, were a lot like the Greeks or or were close relationship or kin to the Greeks. The Greeks functioned in city-states. Maybe you remember that from from world history class. But there are these city-states, and this this organization made them very strong, uh, made them quick. They were more advanced with technology, and so they dominated Israel. I want to show you the five city-states that were there. Uh, so those are the five Philistine cities. So all of the, these forces joined together to go to war against Israel. All of the, the men of war from these five Philistine cities, they, they join together, they go up to Aphek, and they rally there. And they're getting ready to march on Jezreel, where uh, uh, Saul will be encamped with his army. And you need to understand that this isn't just a battle. This isn't a skirmish. Uh, this is a, meant to be a campaign of war to wipe out the Israelites. And these Philistine leaders, they see David there. What is he doing here? What is these, these Hebrews doing here? Because they recognize that, that they, they sing songs about David. Songs like Saul has is, is slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. Ten thousands Philistines. Us. Why are we going to bring him into battle with us? All he has to do to to win back favor with his king is to turn and fight against us. No way is he going to go to battle with us. Send him home. And so Akish breaks the news to David, you have to go home, you can't go with us to battle. Now this was, was, was the God's hand in this, and we see it in two ways. The first is this. Um, uh, God intended on defeating Saul and destroying the army in that battle. God in, in, intended to make an end to Saul and take away his throne. Second thing is that David uh, needed to go and rescue his family, and we'll get to that in a second. But th- th- there's this question here. Did David really intend to go and fight against his own people? And the text doesn't actually give us a clear answer, but if you read between the lines a little bit, you see a hint. 
And the hint takes us back to, to chapter 24 when, when Saul is in the cave and he's relieving himself. And David's in the inner part of it and his men tell him, now's the moment. Kill him. And David says, I'm not gonna raise my hand against God's anointed. I'm not gonna raise my hand against the man that God installed on the throne. It's up to God to remove him. To raise my hand against God's anointed is to raise my hand against God. It's to raise my hand against the throne of God. And that's demonic. That's satanic. That's what, that's what the spiritual forces at work do. I'm not gonna do that. But then after Saul walks out of that cave, and David has cut off the corner of his robe, and David follows him out of the cave, and what does he do? He falls flat on his face, and he says, my lord, the king. My lord, the king. When David tells Akish, in verse 8, um, says this, David inquired, I'm uh, oh, sorry, I'm skipping ahead of myself. Um, and David said to Akish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Who is he talking about there? The enemies of my lord, the king, are the Philistines. Because even though Saul pursued him, even though Saul tried to kill him over and over and over again, David refused to follow another king. He was still his king. He didn't intend to, to raise his hand against him even in combat. So uh, let's move on then. Um, looking back at the map, uh, we see that uh, the, the Philistines, they head north uh, to, uh, to Mount Gilboa uh, where the, the last fight will take uh, place. We'll look at that next week. Uh, but David returns south to Ziklag, his home. Now this is a 50-mile journey that he and his, make, uh, his men make in less than three days. He, he arrives to his hometown completely physically spent. Look at chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. And when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. So all of the armies of the Philistines, David's army, all of the, the forces in the region head north to fight this battle against Israel, leaving the southern part of Palestine completely vulnerable. The Amalekites take this as an opportunity to go and make raids, not only against Ziklag, but against the Philistines as well. They make these raids. They burn down Ziklag, David's hometown, and they tarry off David's wives and children. And, and the men uh, of, of, of his army, they come and they find this has taken place. Now, as I just said, he, they've just marched 50 miles in less than three days with full military gear. They're exhausted when they arrive home. And when they arrive home, they find their home is burned and their wives and children are gone. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally exhausted. No strength left. Look at uh, verse six. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Quite literally, that last line is David felt strengthened in the Lord his God. David didn't have any strength left. God gives him strength. And what does he do with this strength? Verse 8, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. What does he do with the strength God gives him? He goes to God first. He inquires of God. He determines what God's will is, and then he acts. Then he acts. I, I want to point out something else here. 
um, how uh, the, the editor of 1 Samuel connects us back to Exodus 17. Do you notice that David's men want to kill him? They want to stone him to death? Same thing happened to Moses. Moses leading the people out of, of, of Israel out and uh, into, the, into the promised land, and they're in the desert, and they're, they're, they're thirsty, and they threaten to stone Moses because of the situation that they're in. And God intercedes on Moses' behalf. And God says, take your staff and hit the rock, and out of this rock comes, comes water that is able to, 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 to feed the thirst of all of these people. God intercedes, right? Immediately after this story, they fight the Amalekites. Uh, Joshua leads the Israelite troops in the valley while Moses is up on the hillside, and God in, and tells him that he needs to take the staff and raise up his arms, and while he's raising his, his arms, the Israelites win in battle. But as soon as he lowers them down, they start losing. And so uh, Moses gets help. They, they have some helpers holding up his arms and they bring a stone for him to sit on so that he's able to continue this up. So they fight all day, all day, and they win. But God did this to demonstrate one thing. It is not by might that man prevails. It wasn't by Joshua's sword and it wasn't by uh, Moses' arms. It was God that did the work. It is not by might the man prevails. It is by the intervention of the Lord. The, the, the editor of 1 Samuel makes sure that we understand this because it's going to happen again with David. His own people want to kill him and stone him. And immediately after this, they go and they pursue the Amalekites. So uh, God shows up and he, he intercedes on their behalf as they're chasing the Amalekites. Uh, there's this uh, 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 Egyptian slave that they find who had fallen sick. He, he belonged to one of the Amalekites and he's left there to die. And they nurse him back to health and he says, I'll show you where the Amalekites have gone. God, God put this man on their path in order to find the Amalekites. So they chase down the Amalekites. Well, they're almost there. Um, they're, they get to a place called the Brook of Besor and, and uh, the, the third of, of David's men are exhausted. Remember, they, they traveled as fast as they could to get home. They found their homes burned out. They're traveling as fast as they can to get to, to, to rescue their wives and their children. A third of his, of his men are done for, physically spent, can't go any further. And so David says, okay, you guys stay here with the bags. The rest of us are gonna travel lighter and we're gonna catch up. And they do. And they find the Amalekites partying, indulging in all the things that they've acquired through their raids. And, uh, and, and so they go in, in, into combat, and, and, and it says that they, they, they spend over 24 hours in combat. I mean, imagine that. They're already exhausted by the time they reach Ziglag. They're exhausted by the time they reach the brook. They're exhausted by the time they find them, and yet they spend the next 24 hours in combat, hand-to-hand -hand against the Amalekites. Where did the strength of that come from? Where did it come from? So they, they rout the Amalekites, a handful escape, well, once again, the, the, this war is perpetuated from generation to generation, but they get and, and, and they recover their, their wives and their children. Not only that, it says that, that not a thing, single thing was missing, like not a shred of their clothing. They got it all back, everything all back. And on top of that, they got all the spoil that they had taken from the Philistines. And just a minute ago, his, his men were about to stone him, and now they're saying, David, you deserve the glory for this victory. You get to have all the spoils. And David's like, no. They go back to the brook of, of Besor where they left the, the third of their men. And David begins to divide up the spoil and he gives the same amount to the guy who stayed behind as to the one who went into battle. And the guys who went into battle said, well, this isn't fair. 
why does the guy who stayed with the bags get the same amount that I do? And David's like, you don't, you don't understand. You contributed just as much to this victory as they did. You didn't win this. It is not by might that we prevailed. It was the hand of God who interceded on our behalf. Where did that strength to fight come from if it didn't come from God? You see, all of this spoil, this is grace. This is God's gift to us. We didn't earn this. We didn't deserve this. You did just as much in that fight as the guy did who stayed with the bags. It's grace. So David, they, they go back to, to Ziklag, and, and, and David sends the rest of the spoil out to the, to the leaders of, of, of the tribe of Judah. And at the very beginning of 2 Samuel, uh, it is David, it's, it's, he's anointed king then. But David finishes out um, his role in, in the first part of Samuel. Do you see what has happened to him? Do you see how God took the, the, this boy, who was the, the youngest of eight boys, who was destined to spend his life in the field, in the pasture, watching a bunch of sheep, and God takes him and elevates him and, and, and brings him to a place where he becomes the king of all of Israel. Do you see the truth of Hannah's words? Uh, to go back to, to, to what she said, the Lord makes rich. He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. Not by might shall a man prevail. And David, it bears this out in his life. He didn't prevail because of his might. He prevailed because God reached down and exalted him. You look at the story of Hannah. She was able to prevail because God reached down and saw her need and intervened and exalted her. Moses, same, God reached down and he intervened and saved his life from the stoning of the people and, and caused the people to, 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 to get water and then to defeat the amount. Like, over and over and over again, this is borne out on the pages of Scripture. It is not by might that man prevails. So why are you trying to prevail by might? Why? You look at the song of Hannah, and you see there's two parts of the song of Hannah. There's hope, and there's warning. Here's the warning. The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. She who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills, and he brings down to Sheol. The Lord makes poor. He brings low. The wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the heavens and the earth. It is hope, and it is warning of judgment. It is judgment against the proud and the arrogant. It is judgment against those who see and can attest to the fact that it is God who saves, and yet we still go to work trying to save ourselves. The application of this is twofold. The first is personal. Ask yourself, how are you trying to save your life? What strength are you drawing upon to live? You get up in the morning 
and you go to face the world in which you live. And all of its obstacles and all of its difficulties and all of its pains, what strength are you carrying with you? Is it yours? Where do you find your identity? See, your identity comes from what it is that you worship. And if the, the truth is if you're not actually worshiping God and you're not actually defined by him, you are living off of somebody else's strength but not his. What is your identity? What, what strength are you clinging to? What do you believe will save you? It's personal, but it's communal. What are you exhorting the people around you to? When your, your friends and your neighbors and your loved ones and, and people close to you, when they're experiencing the obstacles and the pain in life, where are you pointing them? Are you telling them to pick themselves up by their bootstraps? Are you telling them to dig down deeper? Are you telling them to get stronger, get tougher? Are you encouraging them to rely on themselves or are you encouraging them to rely on some other human being, some other form of strength that they could rely on? Or are you pointing them to Jesus? Are you going to them and saying, you know what, you don't have it. You don't have the strength that it's gonna take. You don't have enough to overcome. You're not going to prevail, but that doesn't matter. What matters is the one you turn to. What matters is the fact that Jesus has done it for you. You see, there's a word of warning here. There's a word of caution. Don't be like Saul. Don't try to get this kingdom out of your own power and your own strength because you are going to fail. And at the end of the day, you're gonna find yourself hopeless, hopeless at the fact that you are not as strong as you think you need to be. There's warning in there, but there's hope. Hear the hope. You see, she's pointing us to a better David. It is not by might. It's by the intervention of God. Jesus, the Son of God, he takes on flesh, and what does he do? He moves in with his enemies. We who have rebelled and rejected the God who made us, we have had our hands against the very throne of God. And what does Jesus do? He comes to us and he lives with us, his enemies. And he feeds our sick. And he gives our blind sight. And he raises our dead. He fights against sin and death. He wages war. And it's not with spears and it's not with swords. He goes to the cross and he wages war with his own blood. And he dumps it out for us. And he stands in the gap between us and a holy, righteous God, and he absorbs that wrath for us. Why? So that we can become the spoils of victory. You have been ransomed from sin and from death. You have been saved. You have been rescued. He has pursued you, and he has fought for you. You are the spoils of that war, but you also share in the spoils of that war because God himself pours out his spirit into you so that you get to experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, suffering. You get to experience the fruit of the Spirit of God living in you. Do you see the hope there? This is the power of God that's at work that raised his son from the dead and seated him in the heavenlies. And if you believe in Jesus, then you are spiritually sitting with him 
Like, don't you see, when you, when you think about all this and the magnitude of all this, why on earth would you go through life living like a naturalist, believing in the survival of the fittest, trying to prove yourself day after day after day with a strength that just won't last? Why would you do that when the very power of God has saved you? And he hasn't just saved your eternal soul, he saved your, your minutes and your hours and your days and your weeks. Why would you turn to anything else? Why would you proclaim anyone else? It's not by might that man prevails. Do you see the hope in that? I found myself the last few weeks by the grace of God coming to the end of my strength. I've come to the end of, of my limits whether that's physically or emotionally. I've come to, the, this is a hard thing to admit, I've come to the limits of my own maturity. My, my, my own theology surpasses my own emotional maturity. I've come to the limits of that. And I find myself sitting on the ash heap. And it's not a bad place to be. Don't be afraid of that. Because to come to the end of your strength is to be reminded by God of the immense amount of strength that he has for you. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to stop having to try so hard. It's a beautiful thing to realize you can't do it. But there's one who already has he already has. Do you see the hope? It's not by might. Let's pray. Holy Father, how big you are, how immense your power, and how foolish of me when I don't believe that you have it. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for pursuing us, for chasing after us, for defeating the enemies that were holding us captive in sin and death. Holy Spirit, enable us to live in light of the truth. Help us to understand the blessedness of allowing you to exalt us instead of the hopelessness of trying to exalt ourselves. Lord, you save our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.